Welcome back to Forces of Good, the superpower of everyday negotiation. I'm Lucia Cantor St. Amour with co-host Nina Greeley. Negotiation is everywhere, every day. This is the Negotiation Laboratory, where we share insights into basic skills, strategy, history, storytelling, behavioral sciences, and social trends. It's all connected. We are all connected. And everyone can learn the everyday negotiation superpower to be used only for the forces of good. Okay, this is a really fun episode. People absolutely love this topic, and it's the one I get most asked to speak about in lectures and on other podcasts. It's what I call mental maps and traps in negotiation. Ooh, you've got my attention. Yep, this is really secret sauce stuff, but not really secret at all. I'll elaborate. For decades, cognitive psychologists have researched how the brain processes information and what that produces in the outside world in terms of behavior. In the 1970s, two psychologists from Stanford University, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, started to study aspects of decision-making. Does the rational person actually make decisions based on some sort of innate cost-benefit economic analysis? Their work, which they called prospect theory, created a new discipline of science known as behavioral economics, which earned them the Nobel Prize in economics in 2002. Now, Saversky had died by then, so technically the prize only went to Kahneman at the time it was bestowed, and Kahneman has since become a living legend. According to behavioral economics, the rational person theory doesn't take into account all the reasons people behave the way they do. People make decisions relative to a reference point, and that reference point is the status quo, where I am now. Kahneman and Tversky categorized their work into a set of common heuristics, maps of shortcuts that the brain takes so that it can make decisions and function without causing us to collapse in fast-moving everyday life, which otherwise bombards us with far too much information to process. But many of these heuristics can also act as traps in a negotiation if you aren't aware of them. So we're going to look at a few of the most common mental maps and traps, and we'll do it in the fun format of a quiz. Oh, I love a good quiz. That's excellent news, Nina, because you're the one who's taking the quiz. Oh, oops. I spoke too soon. (laughs) (laughs) Now, for this, I dug into my four-inch paper binder of lecture notes from the 10 years I taught negotiation at two law schools. One of those law schools was UC Hastings, currently in the process of being renamed, mind you. One of the research projects within the Center for Negotiation and Dispute Resolution at Hastings, where I taught, was to gather data on student responses to situations that tested some of these mental maps and traps, the very same heuristics studied by Kahneman and Tversky. A questionnaire was developed by the faculty member in charge of the research, and the rest of us were asked to hand out the questionnaire at the beginning of each semester to our students. We'd turn it into the department and receive back the analyzed results. 
At the end of the semester, when the students had long forgotten about the quiz, I'd pass them back out again and go over the results. And that is exactly what we're going to do today, because I actually kept the quiz and averaged out all of the results over the years of my students. The quiz has 10 questions, which we'll go through, and then we'll go back through each question and talk about them. Okay, Nina, ready? I'm ready. Wait, are you grading me on this, Professor? Yes, and it will go on your permanent record. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, everyone listening, you can follow along. Question one. And let me also tell you that there were two versions of the quiz, and they were passed out sort of randomly. So you either got version A or version B, and I'm going to do my best to incorporate the different, the ways that questions were asked differently on the different versions. We'll see how that goes. Question one, Nina, choose between the following. A, a sure loss of $750, or B, a 75% chance to lose $1,000, and a 25% chance to lose nothing. Ooh, that's hard. Those are large amounts of money. I think I'd go with A because I think 25% is relatively small. So yeah, I'll go with A. Okay. And and so by the way, on the other version of the quiz, choice A was a sure gain of $240 and choice B was 25% chance to gain $1,000 and 75% chance to gain nothing. Question two. You're sitting next to a stranger in a bar. Someone hands the stranger $100, telling the pair of you that if you can agree on a division of the $100 between you, you can both keep whatever you agree to. Here are the rules. The stranger must make a single offer to you for some number between zero and $100. You must then either accept or reject the offer. No haggling allowed. If you accept, you split the money as agreed. If you reject, neither of you gets any money. Okay. The stranger makes the following author offer. He gets $98 and you get $2. Would you accept or reject? Definitely reject. And then part of the question asks why? And then there's some blanks to fill in for you to write in an answer. Oh, I just think that $2 seems totally unfair. That's not worth it. So for those who answered reject, as Nina did, how much would the stranger have to offer before you would accept? Nina? Mm, I'm at 20, maybe even $10, maybe even $10, but two is just ridiculous. Okay. Question three. Based on your experience and general knowledge, answer the following questions about the average rate at which the Ninth Circuit United States Court of Appeals is reversed by the United States Supreme Court. Is the Ninth Circuit reversed more than 85% of the time? And then the choices are yes, more than 85% of the time, or no, less than 85% of the time. I would say no. Okay, and on the other version of the quiz, the question was, is the the Ninth Circuit reversed more than 20% of the time? And then yes, more than 20% of the time, and no, less than 20% of the time. Next part of this question is, what is your best estimate of the Ninth Circuit's rate of reversal, Nina? Okay, well, I would say, okay, I'd say about 75%. No, wait, 
let's make it 80%, given that the Supreme Court reverses the majority of cases it reviews. So I'd say 80%. Final answer. Okay, great. And some of our listeners may be thinking, well, this is not really a general knowledge question. And that's okay. Don't worry about that. That's not really the point. And I do acknowledge that this quiz was developed for law students. Question four, you're lying on the beach on a hot day. Okay, that's not developed just for law students. (laughs) (laughs) All you have to drink is ice water. For the last hour, you've been thinking about how much you would enjoy a nice cold bottle of your favorite brand of beer. A companion gets up to make a phone call and offers to bring back a beer from the only place nearby where beer is sold, a small run-down grocery store in a poor neighborhood. She asks, how much are you willing to pay? You trust your friend and there is no possibility of bargaining with the storekeeper. What price are you willing to pay for that beer? Mm, well, I'm not actually really a big beer person, but um, let's assume I am. I, I'd say maybe $5, maybe 6 No, I'm going to go with five, $5, I think. That seems reasonable. Okay. And then, by the way, the other version of the quiz said that the only place nearby where beer is sold is a fancy Michelin five-star result. And then those people had to fill in their answer. Oh. Question five. A deadly flu is expected in your area this fall. Your doctor says that you have a 10% chance of dying from this flu. A vaccine made from a weaker type of flu virus is available, and it will prevent your catching the deadly flu. If you take the vaccine, however, there is a 5% risk that the vaccine will cause you to die from the weaker type of flu. If you had to decide now, would you, A, not take the vaccine and accept the 10% chance of dying from this flu, or B, take the vaccine and accept the 5% chance of dying from the weaker flu in the vaccine. Okay. I'm assuming that the 10% chance includes the certainty that I'll get the flu. Like there's no way. So if so, then I'll take B because it's a smaller percentage. Um, I mean, you could maybe avoid getting the flu altogether, but I think that I'm getting too detailed for the question. So I will go with B. Okay. And the other version of the quiz says, your doctor says that your child has a 10% chance of dying from this flu and not taking the vaccine would be accepting a 10% chance of your child dying from the flu and taking the vaccine would be accepting a 5% chance of your child dying from the weaker flu. Question six. You have just been given a coffee mug. You now own this mug and have the option of turning around and selling it at a price that is acceptable to you. You do not need to sell the mug if you do not wish. For each of the possible sale prices below, indicate whether you will sell the mug or whether you would rather keep it. And then it says circle one for each price because they took this quiz on paper. And then there is a long list of prices ranging from 50 cents all the way up to $9.50. And for each line, it says sell or keep, and you have to circle one. Oh my goodness. So Nina. Well, I mean, for me, this depends entirely on who gave me the mug. That's the first question, because if it has sentimental value, I might not sell it for anything. Um, And then if it's a unique mug... I can't get it anywhere else. I might not sell it for anything. But let's pretend, let's say, this is terrible. This is why I don't like quizzes. Um, um, if it's, let's say, if it doesn't have sentimental value and it's not unique, I probably wouldn't sell it for under $2. Um, I think if I sold it for anything 
over $2, I could just get a replacement somewhere. So I'll say, yeah, I'd sell it if it was over $2, $2 or more. Okay. And then the other version of the quiz said, you have been given the option to receive either a coffee mug or a sum of money. For each of the possible sums of money listed, circle whether you would choose the mug or the money. Wow. Okay. Then this is at the bottom of the page on the quiz, and you're told to look carefully at this number and then turn to the next page for the next question. The number on the page is 27,470. And then we have the question. The number you just looked at has nothing to do with the following question. Do not go back and look at the number again. <laughs> what is your best estimate of the population of Nigeria? Uh, I, oh, I'm so bad with a population question, so I really have no idea. Just, I, I don't know, 20 million people. Okay. And then the other version of the quiz, the number at the bottom of the previous page was 495 million. And then it asked that same question, what's the population of Nigeria? Okay, question eight. Please choose between the following, and you're supposed to circle one. A, a sure gain of $240, or B, a 25% chance to gain $1,000 and a 75% chance to gain nothing. Okay, this is hard. Um, <laughs> That's why I'm not the, taking the quiz. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the wise choice would be A, because it's a sure thing. But, and I think, am I rem remembering back to the first question, also had a 25%, 75% split, and I may be being inconsistent, but B is tempting to me because of the amount. $1,000, it would be nice. So I'm going to throw caution to the wind and go with B. Okay. And then the other version of the quiz, choice A was a sure loss of $750, and choice B was 75% chance to lose $1,000 and 25% chance to uh, lose nothing. Okay. All right. Question nine. We're almost there. <laughs> All right. This is clearly also, again, written for law students, but that's okay. doesn't matter. You are an associate in a law firm that represents the defendant in a complex commercial case, crook versus thief. <laughs> Plaintiff has demanded $1 million in damages. $1 million. You are frankly unsure how well the plaintiff's claims will stand up in court. Plaintiff's counsel, i.e. your opposing counsel, in this case is Sam, a dedicated, super smart lawyer, graduated number three from Berkeley Law. You and Sam recently had a conversation about the case, which concluded with Sam saying, you know, I think my client actually has a really strong claim here and will probably win on the merits, but because there is always the risk that something will go wrong in litigation, and because we will spend a lot of time and money preparing this case for trial, taking it, it, taking it to trial is not in our best interests. Factoring in our risks and costs, my advice to you would be to settle this case now for 80% of the claimed value, or $800,000. Are you inclined to take Sam's advice, and you're just supposed to check yes or no on the quiz paper. No. And then the next part of the question is, do you think Sam's advice favors your client, the defendant, or favors your opponent, the plaintiff? Definitely the plaintiff, his, his client, not mine. Okay. And then the other version of the quiz 
says that Sam is a super smart attorney in your same law firm. And he's talking about the plaintiff actually has a really strong claim here. And, you know, the plaintiff will spend a lot of time on money preparing and so on and so forth. Okay. So in in that version, he's your colleague. Yes. Interesting. Okay. Final question, Nina. Question 10. The United States is preparing for another pandemic. This time around, scientists have used sophisticated epidemiological modeling techniques to predict that it will kill 600 people. Two alternative programs are being considered. Which would you favor? And you're supposed to circle one. Choice A is, if program A is adopted, 200 people will be saved for certain. Choice B says, if program B is adopted, there is a one-third probability that all 600 will be saved and a two-thirds probability that none will be saved. you got to circle one. Oh, gosh. I hate these kinds of questions. Um, okay. One-third. I think I would go with A just because of the certainty aspect of it, even though – yeah, okay. I'll, I'll say A. Okay. Uh, final answer. Okay. And then the other version of the quiz said, if program A is adopted, 400 people will be saved for certain. If program B is adopted, there is a one-third probability that no one will die and a two-thirds probability that all 600 will die. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Okay. I I didn't get that version. (laughs) (laughs) That's too funny. Okay. So let's go over the results. Yes. Questions one and eight are measuring risk aversion versus risk seeking. 80% of students preferred the sure gain to the chance of a somewhat larger gain. 87% preferred taking a risk to accepting a sure loss. Okay. Okay. Question two is measuring this concept of fairness. 78% rejected the $98 to $2 split using words like unfair and punish to explain a refusal. That was me. Yep. They wanted an average of $27.64 before accepting. Those who accepted said they'd do so because $2 is more than $0. Questions three and seven, the anchoring effect. So this was the Ninth Circuit reversals, more or less than 85%. The average estimate was 40%. On the other version of the quiz, where it was more or less than 20%, the average estimate was 12%. So do you see the proportionality there? Yeah. With the population of Nigeria, when the number shown was 495 million, the average estimate was 78,250,000. When the number shown was 27,470, the average estimate was 37,057,142. So quite a bit lower. The idea here is that just saying a number, any number, not even related to the topic of negotiation, can act as an actor or influencer, for example, walking into the room and declaring, wow, it feels like a million degrees outside today. This is so fascinating. I mean, I used to work for the Ninth Circuit, to be fair, and I used to get into arguments about reversal rates all the time. So I had 
kind of an advantage on that one. My guess was a little low, but maybe that's because I have a pro Ninth Circuit bias. And as for the population guesses, well, clearly I'm just as bad as I said I was, but maybe the two that I used in my number was suggested by the number that you that they gave. Oh, I, I wouldn't doubt it. Yep, yeah. definitely. So question four was context effect. Those who were told the beer would be bought at a rundown store were willing to pay an average of $4.71 for it, while those who were told it would come from a five-star hotel would pay an average of $9. See also anchoring effect. Makes sense, yeah. Question five, deciding for yourself versus others. Only 57% would accept the vaccine for themselves, yet 88% would accept it for their child. Now, I wonder if the results of this question would be different now since the real-life pandemic and the politicization of the COVID vaccine. I might call that my own backyard effect. (laughs) Yes. Okay, question six, endowment effect. Those who had a mug wanted an average of $3.43 to sell it. Those who could choose money or a mug chose the mug when the offer of money was $2 or less. So pretty similar to you, Nina. This is also related to loss aversion and value asymmetry, hearkening back to our second episode and the chocolate negotiations. Here's the idea. Once people own something or have a feeling of ownership, they irrationally overvalue it, regardless of its objective market value. People feel the pain of loss twice as strongly as they feel the pleasure at an equal gain, and they fall in love with what they already have and prepare to pay more to retain it. A variation of endowment effect is IKEA effect. This is a bias in which people place a disproportionately high value on products they partially created. For example, in one study, participants who built a simple IKEA storage box themselves, side note, I don't consider anything from IKEA simple to assemble, were willing to pay much more for the box than a group of participants who merely inspected a fully built box. That is okay. So if you are negotiating, it is. And think of how you can use this. If you're in, say, a sale purchase negotiation, recognize that it may be difficult for the seller to objectively assess offers that fall below their personalized value of a beloved vintage car, the house where they brought home their first baby, and so on. So here's an everyday super tip. Recognize that you too may have sentimental attachments to objects, great and small, and this can cloud your judgment and lead to impasse in a negotiation over the objective value of the item. If you see this happening with the other party, because it's probably easier to see it happening with someone else than yourself, try the powerful tool of empathy, my favorite negotiation word, and give them some time to come to terms with separating from that item. Makes sense. Okay, question nine, reactive devaluation. This bias occurs when a proposal, business or otherwise, is devalued or seen negatively because it seems to originate from a negative or antagonistic source. So 68% were inclined to take a colleague's evaluation of a case and 
none, that is zero, would accept the same evaluation from the opposing lawyer. Wow. So yeah. consider a plan or idea proposed by a coworker with whom you've disagreed in the past and how you might react. Or think about the human resources professional who regularly receives complaints from the same employee. We'll call him Carl the complainer. And <laughs> Carl complains about the temperature in the office and that someone heated up a fish sandwich in the microwave break room that filled the room with fish odor and that the copy machine paper isn't recycled. When Carl presents the HR representative with a complaint of workplace harassment, reactive devaluation can be perilous and illegal as a mental trap if that HR associate doesn't make sure to separate the complaint from her overall impression of Carl as a petty complainer. Yeah, now, makes sense. In a mediation setting, I've witnessed reactive devaluation of a proposal suggested by opposing counsel or the other party. They may dismiss the proposal or offer out of hand, thinking, well, if this is such a good deal for us, they wouldn't be offering it. This is an instance where taking some time to evaluate proposals objectively can pay off, or me presenting it to the other party as a mediator's proposal might be a path forward. Reactive devaluation is also related to the brain's negativity bias and rejection of those who are not part of our in-group. That mm -hmm. is, those whom our brain negatively appraises as not belonging. It is a particularly insidious heuristic that can blind us in everyday situations and cause us to ignore important information and warnings. That's an important one. Yeah. yeah. It can be really hard to see a lot of times, too. Question 10, framing effect. 71% shows the risk-averse response when the problem was framed in terms of lives saved. 63% chose to take a risk when the problem was framed in terms of lives lost. A colleague of mine was recently visiting Brazil on his book tour, and while out at a bar one night, he ordered his drink and then was told he first needed to rent a cup. Rent a cup? He was confused and, frankly, put off. If the bar had simply built in the rental of the cup with the price of the drink, he wouldn't have bristled or even noticed the cost at all. How you frame your offer can have a huge impact on how it is received and what a counteroffer might look like or just an outright rejection. Uh-huh. Okay, so there are some other common mental maps and traps that I would like to cover in this episode. And another one that is extremely insidious and powerful is confirmation bias. We absolutely need to cover this one because it happens everywhere to everyone every day, especially these days, it seems. It's the mm -hmm. tendency to search for or interpret information in the way that confirms one's pre-existing beliefs leading to statistical and strategic errors. When people would like a certain idea to be true, they end up believing it to be true. Confirmation bias is particularly problematic because it does not allow a person's perspective to change, even based on evidence. It enables people with opposing beliefs to dig their heels in further rather than to adapt their mindset to the surroundings. Very problematic. Consider a person in, again, a workplace personality conflict. Rather than talking to those people who might 
disabuse them of their negative impressions of the coworker, they usually gripe to people most likely to agree with them. As a result, their negative impressions become amplified in an echo chamber of agreement. The chorus they hear is, wow, she is awful to treat you that way. The complainer's blamelessness rises while the image of the adversary is demoted further into someone really unsavory. So here's another everyday super tip. To counteract confirmation bias when preparing for a negotiation or even a difficult conversation, actively seek out information that contradicts your point of view. Well, that makes sense because we had to do this as attorneys, right, Lucia, when we were preparing a case? I mean, you have to conduct research into the case law that supports the other side's theory of the case. So you can counter it and persuade the judge or jury. I mean, we'd be committing a really risky error if we looked for and found only examples that conform to our theory of the case. Absolutely, Nina. We're lucky to be trained in counteracting confirmation bias. There's a special and daunting word for when attorneys make mistakes, malpractice. So it's critical that the attorney also research cases that challenge their theory of the case so that they can prepare rebuttals and avoid being caught off guard. This is yet another area where the art of negotiation meets science. Astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson tells us the same thing. Question your hypothesis. More important than proving it right, try every possible way to prove it wrong before deciding it's right. Related to confirmation bias is the overconfidence effect. This is when we systematically overestimate our knowledge and our ability to predict. Overconfidence measures the difference between what people really know and what they think they know. And it Uh turns out the experts (laughs) suffer even more from the overconfidence effect than lay people do. Studies have found that over 90% of U.S. drivers rate themselves above average. 68% of professors consider themselves in the top 25% for teaching ability, and 84% of Frenchmen believe they are above average lovers. (laughs) Okay. Reciprocity effect is extremely alluring and one of the most powerful maps and traps. It's very simple. If someone does something for you, you'll naturally want to do something for them. When you offer something for free, people feel a sense of indebtedness toward you. For example, researchers tested how reciprocity can increase restaurant tipping. Tips went up 3% when diners were given an after-dinner mint. Tips went up 20% if, while delivering the mint, the waiter paused, looked the customer in the eye, and then gave them a second mint while telling them the mint was especially for them. Wow. In another study, 11% of people were willing to donate an amount worth one day's salary when they were given a small gift of candy while being asked for a donation, compared to 5% of those that were just asked for their donation. Think of a recent invitation to a friend's house for dinner where your friend insists that you need not bring anything other than yourself. It's almost impossible to just show up at the door empty-handed without bearing some contribution, such as a bottle of wine. Exactly. So here's where we can throw in another everyday super tip. 
Remember episodes four and five on planning and preparing your concessions. If you give a little, you're more likely to get concessions from the other side because the reciprocity effect is almost impossible to resist. It also helps everyone, including you, feel that the final deal was hard won. Okay, moving on. Social proof. No matter how unique we think we are, we all have some degree of inherent desire to conform, to belong, to be accepted. Largely considered the go-to source on the psychology of persuasion, Robert Cialdini includes social proof as one that makes the top six of the psychology of influence. So now you're going, ooh, what are the others? Yes. <laughs> so I might as well just tell you. Consistency, reciprocity, the liking principle, authority, and scarcity are the five others. Oh, hold on, Lucia. Exactly how many of these mental maps and traps are there? <laughs> Good question. I don't have an answer. Probably over a hundred. Oh. I'm going to drop a link in the episode notes to a website with a handy little set of icons that summarizes 50 of them at least for you. Thank you. Okay. Where was I? Right. People will more likely participate or comply when they see other people also doing something. Social proof is especially effective in situations of uncertainty, where the only source of information in the moment is to look to others for cues on what to do. A study cited by Cialdini concerned charitable donations. Showing people a list of their neighbors who had donated to a charity led to a substantial increase in funds raised. The more names on the list, the more people donated. That is a ploy that is used by the door-to-door magazine salespeople that come to my neighborhood, by the way. Do you still have them? Yes. <laughs> that is so quaint. <laughs> Social proof is a basic arrow in a marketer's quiver. Consider likes in social media, Yelp reviews, customer product reviews, the use of influencers using a particular product or frequenting a particular restaurant or club. Consider even the fact that you've seen a queue of people waiting for entry to a club that could be staged to create the impression that it's a desirable place to be. The ploy is effective. Okay, one more everyday super tip, and I think that we'll be ready to close this out because this is a lot to digest, isn't it? Yes. Remember our episodes on questions and gathering information? Be that curious child. If pressured by social proof, for example, everyone else is jumping from the cliff, why don't you get more information? Ask, well, how high is the cliff? Could I slide down it? I love that one, Lucia. <laughs> and it seems so obvious now that you're telling us about it. Exactly, Nina. I think of them as secrets in plain sight, and you don't need to be an expert to be aware of them and use them. That's the whole point. The purpose of this podcast and book launching this fall is to empower everyday people in their everyday lives. Go be your own super selves, everyone. Thanks for listening, or even partially listening, while you multitask. You never know what might stick with you. Keep your ear out for this space, because we sure do appreciate your company. You can find us on Substack, Apple Podcasts, and at pactumfactum.com.